find a way. Idil Elverish presents. In this program, my guest is Maria Volpi from New York, who runs the largest listserv in conflict resolution. Welcome back to another program of We Can Find A Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Idil Elverish. In today's program, my guest is Maria Volpe, who is a scholar that established one of the largest listservs in the world about conflict resolution. She and I talked about how she did that and beyond, what mediators can do to respond to emergencies like 9-11, her presence at John Jay College in New York, often turning into conflict coaching, and whether mediation can work in the police force. Before I introduce you to Maria's resume, I would like to give you some news about We Can Find A Way. This podcast has its own webpage now in PodPage. It allows you to rate and review the podcast. So please go ahead and do that, which would be super useful for me. You can check the website and even become a member. You can also donate via PayPal to support me. As you know, I have been running this podcast for almost two years now. I talk to many people in various countries, edit the podcast and do its PR. I subscribe to several services to produce this podcast. This allows me to use photos, apps and web design services and This podcast is bilingual, so there are translation costs for every episode done in English. Your contributions will serve those ends and would be very much appreciated. Let me introduce Maria Volpe. She is a professor of sociology and the director of the Dispute Resolution Program and the Center at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York. She lectures, researches, and writes about dispute resolution processes, particularly mediation, and has many awards in the field. She's also in the editorial board of important journals in the field, such as Conflict Resolution Quarterly and Negotiation Journal at Harvard Law School. She received her PhD and MA from New York University and her BA from the State University of New York, Plattsburgh. Let us now move to the interview that took place in October 2020 via Zoom. Okay, so you have established this amazing online dispute resolution listserv after 9-11 events in New York City. It is now the largest network ever in this area, 3,300 members. It's a huge success. What was your goal when you established it? Thanks for asking the question. Actually, we're up to over 3,700 change almost on a daily basis. So we were in New York City when 9-11 happened, the epicenter of horrific attacks. I was getting calls from everyone, emails, asking what were we doing in response to the tragedy. And we weren't even talking to each other. I mean, we were spread out all over the place. There were two national listservs at the time. I thought, okay, maybe we should get together. So I put out emails on these national listservs. If you're in New York City and you'd like to talk about what we could do as dispute resolvers in response to the situation we're experiencing, I was going to hold a breakfast. The date was going to be September 20th. A whole group of people came and we had 
a wonderful conversation. We decided that we needed a way to communicate with each other. We were also going to meet again face to face, but wouldn't it be nice if we had an electronic means of communicating? And I thought, well, I think I could try to find out if there's a way for us to set up a listserv. And in fact, September 27th, we launched this listserv basically going to be a way for us in New York to communicate with each other. And the overarching question for us is, what can conflict resolvers do as conflict resolvers in response to disasters or tragedies? So while we were continuing this conversation face-to-face, we would meet every couple of weeks, and we had a very broad thought around who should be a part of this. So it could be mediators, arbitrators, people interested in restorative justice, social justice, violence prevention, peace building. We were going to be that big umbrella of everyone and anyone. What kind of dispute resolution interventions can dispute resolvers have in an emergency situation? We've had a number of major disasters since then, mostly hurricane-related. Interestingly, there are often very few responses that we as conflict resolvers can engage in in the aftermath of these disasters. Usually the response is emergency-related, their life and death, grievance, trying to make sure that emergency needs are taken care of, food, shelter, rescue, recovery. But there are very few opportunities for dispute resolvers. You would hear, you know, I tried to help, but there really isn't a role for me. Or I helped. I was at the food kitchen. Anyone could do that. What were you doing as a dispute resolver? It was really interesting that there was a grievance center where people could go, families that had been affected by um, 9-11. You had to be credentialed in social work or psychiatry or psychology disciplines that actually does that kind of work. And if you didn't have those credentials, they weren't letting you in. The lesson learned was that it's hard to introduce your field when it's not known in the aftermath of a disaster. You need to have established yourself long before that so that you weren't introducing your field in addition to trying to do the work. I think the response was a little different after some of the hurricane disasters, particularly in the Florida region where they had perfected their insurance mediation responses to all the property damages. They were able to kick in almost immediately because they were known, they had established their infrastructure. That has now been one of the immediate responses, even in New York after Hurricane Sandy. I think that one of the other lessons learned is that it takes time for conflicts to ripen to a point where, in fact, that process like mediation would kick in. Usual response is there'll be some efforts between the parties themselves. And as we know, if those don't work out, then there's a need to look to others. And rather than seeking court intervention, litigators are now turning to mediation. Many of the governments are making these efforts available or encouraging them to try to reduce some of the loads in the formal ways of litigating these disputes. 
your goal of responding in an emergency as a dispute resolver maybe wasn't served, but you have been able to open communication channels between dispute resolvers in New York City, but also beyond. At the very outset, I think we were very parochial and very protective. Of, this is our New York community. We're going to talk about events, jobs, issues that are of interest to New Yorkers. Now no one even blinks. And of course, with COVID, this you know, introduction of the online world, there are countless events going on all over the globe. It's impossible to follow. Most of them are free, which is amazing. Most of them are on the listserv. I learned many things all the time from the listserv. I met many people through the listserv. So it's not only a benefit for New Yorkers anymore. It's, it's oh, a very God. universal thing. I also love the eruption of like heated debates in the listserv. And I know you want to refrain from commenting on that. Do you think... Dispute resolution practitioners avoid getting involved in polarized political, social issues, controversial issues in order to be seen objective, neutral. I think it's a very personal choice on the part of individuals on when and how they want to take stands so that some will always take a stand for social justice on certain issues, but would never weigh in on another issue. Not everyone on the listserv is a mediator, so not everyone subscribes to neutrality or impartiality or even self-determination because some might be third-party neutrals who make decisions. So probably depends on the context that individuals come from. Are you a mediator in all aspects of your life? Is that the only thing that you are? I think we'll get differing views on that. Reputations are part of people's identities. If one were to make, for example, a racist or anti-Semitic statement that could, like in any other profession, have ripple effects on your acceptability to certain parties as a conflict resolver. I don't think that we are any more exempt from reputation making than any other field. In your capacity as a scholar, you are very much engaged in the conflicts at your school. There are conflicts among the student body or the community, which are very diverse in New York. Please tell us about these initiatives. How do they work? What do you do? So on a daily basis, as we know, conflicts are universal. We experience all kinds of differences with each other. My life is as an indigenous conflict resolver. I'm someone who's part of the community. And in any community where one is a part of it, one is, especially if you're the go-to person, you're going to get a lot of people checking in with you on how they should do something, how should I handle this situation, etc. I also consider myself a pracademic, someone who comes as this as both a scholar and practitioner. So there's that combined role so that I do get a lot of inquiries wondering, what are some of the options here? So I would say most of what goes on on a daily basis is like conflict coaching. People, you know, stop you in the hallways or call or email to talk about strategies. They don't really want someone to go in and deal with the situation. They want to be able to do it themselves. 
but they need some guidance, some help. And that helps them to go back and deal with the situation themselves. There's a part of me that thinks that we should do massive worldwide training to think like a mediator, right? You know, as Bill Urie says, stand on the balcony and look down and be able to see what's going on. That's sort of the role that I play on a day-to-day basis. And you're on the balcony with people, but you're helping them to think the issues are, what the options are, brainstorming some of the options, what the consequences might be, really does help people to deal with their situation after they've talked to, oh, I just feel so much better. You know, I have an idea of, you know, what might, what might not work. I'll try this. Then there are the intractable, deep-rooted kinds of conflicts, and those can take months to work on. You're not really like an ombuds at the university, if I understand you correctly. It's not an official position. Yeah, it's really interesting because sometimes I say to myself, this is exactly what an ombuds person does, but I don't have that title. People trust you. They will come to you whether you have that title or not. Universities, governments, hospitals, corporations, federal agencies, the United Nations all have ombuds people. They are in very official roles of trying to help deal with situations that I just do informally. People are trying to find more comforting ways of dealing with differences. And it's also not only a responsive tool, but it's a preventative tool. If you know that there's an ombuds person there, you can go to check out something before it erupts or before it gets worse or that there's someone there who might be able to work on your behalf. It's a way of risk management. It could be, you know, a way of reducing all of their potential exposure, yeah. And I think that, you know, when done well, people really do appreciate having one more way of dealing with their differences. I mean, since 1989... We've been holding town meetings on a monthly basis at the college. The faculty, administrative, and student leaders with the community to deal with any issue that anyone wants to bring up. They provide an opportunity for people to share, to quash rumors, to get information. And it's, again, another of those institutionalized preventative mechanisms. My last question is about uh, use of mediation in the police force. I know this is something you're interested in. So what was the rationale behind it? It's a very hierarchical relationship. There is guns, threat of violence, etc. Tell us, like, how did this idea come about? So when I first started at John Jay, here I was, and new professor at a college of criminal justice. Always, there have always been concerns about police community relations. With my set of lenses, what better process than mediation? Now, this is 1981, right? Didn't all police officers be trained in mediation? And so I started talking about it. And at one point, they had me meet with a top police brass type who was at the college and he does some quick numbers and he says this would cost millions of dollars we would have to take police off the streets and 
train them, so you'd have to find replacement. Yeah, it does all these numbers, and he says, well, that's not going to work. And I'm thinking, that's the one process that I really think would work. Police officers would be better listeners. They would be able to help strengthen these relationships with the community. De-escalate, I mean, just perfect. And then there was another stream that was occurring at the same time. I had students in the classroom, many of them who were going to become police officers, who were trained in mediation, and they would come back and say, you know, I feel much more comfortable as a police officer because of the training I had here. We didn't have anything like this at the academy. And then they would compare themselves with like their partners who hadn't had mediation training, and they would come back and say, you know, I had a really hard time because my partner wanted to make an arrest, and I really thought we should work things out, or I knew how to work things out. My partner just stood there looking at me. So there were both of these, like, I'm thinking this is a great process, and here are my students coming back saying, it's really working for me. I can't say that mediation has really taken hold. I do think that in 2020, we do see many, many, many police officers trained in mediation. What many of them are exposed to is the kind of training that many of the community mediation programs do as part of their outreach. They go to the precincts in some cases or the police departments, the police stations, and do introductory sessions around what mediation is. They sort of have an awareness about mediation. They may even get one or two little skills from the field, but I'm not sure that they actually get the full training. There are some who do. I do think that it's an idea whose time has come with all of the concern around racial and social justice in the U.S. that mediation is the perfect process to train officers in, particularly those who do any sort of neighborhood or community-based policing to be able to deal with the concerns that are being raised by the individual. So overall, I think that police departments have warmed up to the concept of mediation-like interventions. For it to work, I think we need to work on both the public and organizational structure of policing, right? In the community, people need to appreciate an officer who comes and says, let's see if we can try to work this out versus agreeing to arrest so-and-so immediately. The public's awareness about what mediation is from a police perspective needs to be changed. They need to be informed about what it means to have a police as a, a mediator versus as a decision maker who comes in and makes decisions on the spot. They're not doing anything kind of thing. Well, they are. And within the police department, police officers need to be rewarded for this kind of policing. It's like any other job. If you don't get rewarded for doing whatever, even though it's a better way of doing something, why would you do it? You might even be reprimanded for doing something that doesn't follow protocol that in this case we arrest. We don't sit there and problem solve. You know, not only do they need the reward structure, they also need to have time to do it. Mediation could take time. If you're on a schedule where you're getting you know, a string of requests and you need to be able to respond very quickly, this could be a staffing issue, it could be a scheduling issue, it's a mindset issue. 
but it's complicated. To just say they should do it is easier than done. It requires an infrastructure. It requires a mindset. It requires a ready public. Without all the pieces, you know, the overarching guidance uh, around policing is that they can use force if needed. I mean, what mediator would ever think of using force? That's the antithesis of what we're about. We don't use force. So there are those who think that police mediation is an oxymoron. They just don't go together. The fact that you show up in a uniform with a gun, it is very complicated. And, you know, as long as we want police to do something and to do it my way, and that they're going to have to convince these individuals that they're responding to that, hey, let's try to work this out. Maybe you can do this. And we give them the time and the rewards and all of that. It's not a simple policy to implement, particularly in a polarized society, right? To think that the police, and this is part of the current discourse around defunding police, trying to find other resources or other means of reaching out to the community. What else can be part of policing that isn't there? So maybe training them as mediators is one way, but providing them with ride-along mediators, maybe, who actually are partners, can do some of that work. And some police departments, for example, they do ride along with social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, who can provide those kinds of mental health services. Police officers have adopted all kinds of programs around mental health related matters for years. Mediators don't always bring those skill sets for the future of the field. I do think that we need much more compensated work for there to be a robust field. I think as much as we like to think that we've made major advances and we're no longer pioneers, I think in some ways we still are forging our way ahead and I also think that the public needs greater public awareness about what mediation is. We need more data to try to impress upon others the value of this field until we can show what works, what doesn't work, what needs improvement. We as a field need to do greater public awareness. While sometimes we say people don't understand mediation, I think that we need to put the burden back on our back. Um, We also need to define what some clear career paths are for this field. The contemporary mediation field is at least 50 years old since the late 60s when we began to see the blossoming of this field. So that's my sort of wish list for where do we go. Thank you very much. My pleasure. In today's program, my guest was Maria Volpe. She explained how the listserv about conflict resolution started its journey post 9-11. Maria made many interesting points ranging from what the profession needs to focus on to develop mediation, as well as make itself more relevant for the society to what conflict coaching is and why it's needed in an organization and in general. She also said why training the police in mediation is important, especially today in the polarized U.S., but also beyond, since many polities today are as divided. So I hope you enjoyed the program. I will upload a picture of Maria in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. 
Lastly, I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Seren Göktan, who allowed me to use their materials. I thank Ahmed Sal for sharing his knowledge about the best equipment and voice controls with me. And I would like to thank Efsane Shimal Yalçın for the translation that she always meticulously performs. Thank you and see you in the next program of We Can Find A Way. We Can Find A Way. Idil Elverish presented. <laughs> <laughs>